G'day and welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession, a podcast where we get to learn about property in ways that we often don't think about. And today we're here to listen to the amazing story of Western Australia's first gold boom. And as always, this is a story about land and about our drivers. Today we'll hear about how the population of Coolgardie went from nothing to being Western Australia's third largest city in just a few years. With the east coast of Australia deep in depression, hundreds and thousands migrated to the west seeking their fortune, and the arrival of miners from all around the world created a melting pot of some of the toughest and fittest men in the world. And as always, we see technology playing such a crucial role. See, water was scarce, so a new solution had to be found as to how gold could be separated for rock. Enter the Lord and Patent Cradle Blower, which used air rather than water to separate the precious gold. And the gold that brought the wealth to Coolgardie ensured that it had the latest and the greatest, including a main street lit by electric light. Our guest today, Vic, will tell us about the engineering feat that brought water some 600 kilometres inland to help ensure the longevity of Kilgardie and the entire Western Australian goldfields. And see, with all this action going on, we know the government is never far away. And there they were, busily issuing leases and mining permits and, of course, maintaining law throughout. When it comes to credit, any story about boom and bust we know there's always plenty of credit to be found. And Kilgardie's gold ensured it had numerous banks as well as two stock exchanges making the money go round. This is the story of Western Australia's first gold boom. And joining me today to tell this amazing story is Victor Dale. Vic, welcome to Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. Thank you. Now, today, Vic, you're going to take us back in time to a you know very different time in a different location. We're talking the 1890s gold rush of Western Australia. And I always like to start at the beginning, and you can definitely say that it all started at Coolgardie. Um, now, I had a look before we, uh, we got online together here, and in 2016, census said that there were 3,610 people living in Coolgardie. But in 1898, Coolgardie was the third largest town in Western Australia after Perth and Fremantle. It had two stock exchanges, three breweries, six newspapers, over 60 stores and 26 hotels and churches. It's a classic story of boom and bust, Vic. How on earth did it all start out there in Coolgardie? Well, you know, it it wasn't the first um, gold find. I mean, they'd found gold in several places, even right up in the north, up at Halls Creek and places like that. And then closer to Coolgardie's time was at Southern Cross. and um, but, but none of them were any really substantial finds. And, and the one at Coolgardie, of course, produced a, a huge amount of gold. And so... Um, it, it, it is a, it is the key to the prosperity that Western Australia enjoys today because, see, 1890, we had just under 38,000 people in the state. And then 10 years later, there's 800,000 in the state. And, and of course, it's all due to the rush at Coolgardie. It starts from Coolgardie. So Coolgardie is instrumental in bringing large numbers of people into Western Australia. But... Uh, I think even further and a bigger contribution to that goes to the fact that um, Coolgardie was the, the first um, undertaking in the, in the state 
that brought in the foreign investment on, on a large scale. And so money was pouring into Western Australia, all thanks to Coolgardie Gold Rush. And it's at that pivotal point that Western Australia it, it, it starts to take off. And, of course, it doesn't go backwards from there, but it does start at Coolgardie. Can you give listeners a little bit of context as to where we're actually talking? Because, you know, it's not as though um, Coolgardie's just around the corner from Perth and Frio, is it? No, 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 it's not. Um, it, it, I mean, one of the first things that's done with, with, with money that's coming out of Coolgardie, they widen and deepen the Fremantle Harbour so they can get bigger shipping in. Um and, of course, it, it, it plays off a big part against the eastern part of Australia because there was a recession going down the east coast mm. and uh, people were struggling on farms and all those sorts of things. So a lot of people came off the eastern part of Australia to the Coolgardie Rush. But they came from all over the world and, and um, the biggest contingent of that part um, were coming off the American Gold Rush. Yeah, Okay. Okay, so and that's a really interesting point that you made just before, Vic, about the other impacts that this has. So, um, so Coolgardie is about six hundred odd kilometres. Is that correct from from Perth? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. And, and so you know you've got huge amounts of a uh, population influx, and also you know goods and and shipping that's come through and. And so from Coolgardie, you've got the, the deepening of the um, uh, the Fremantle port to ensure that commerce can be facilitated. And I guess this is one of the points of our podcast is that, you know, those natural locational advantages and, and the way in which population and, and our other drivers, you know, link together can have a huge impact on, on, on land and, and the desirability of land itself. Um, and what you said also about, you know, the... the miners and prospectors coming from the other side of Australia is really important to understand that you'd gone through, um, you know, the marvellous Victorian era where, where, where Victoria, where the Victorian gold fields were, were abundantly full and there was a lot going on. There was an, a, a terrible depression that was going on in Victoria at this stage. So, you know, that um, migration of, of, of men sort of made sense, didn't it, Vic? Yes, it does. It does. And, um, you know, the other part of Coolgardie, which is very remarkable, is that, um, see, there was a – the railway line was as far as Southern Cross at that stage, but um, it, it's just almost exactly 200 k's from Southern Cross to Coolgardie. And that – there was nothing. And that had to be crossed by whatever means you could come up with. And, um, you know, the the, the first – at least 12 months, you know, there were very, very few women on the gold fields. And even with the men, only the strong men were making that trip. And um, one of the, the finest statements I've ever read in my life, uh, late 1893, John Forrest, the Premier of the state, he came to Coolgardie to promise the men he would bring the railway line and he would bring water, which eventually he did. But Forrest is a... Um, is a proud man, and he's earned the right to be called a man. He's been a surveyor with his brother from the top of Western Australia right around to the bottom of Western Australia, out past Esperance and Eucla. And um, from the back of this, this four-wheel buckboard, 
um, he, he, he said never in his life had he cast his eyes on such fine quality of manhood. Mm. And coming from Forrest, that's a very, very big statement to make. But you see, amongst these, these were the men who could roll up a swag on the American gold rush. And then, you know, two months later, they've walked into Coolgardie. Yes. And so they were the cream of the earth. They weren't just Joe Brown from down the street. Before the railway got there, I mean, the, the, the trek that people had to make, I mean, it's quite astounding, isn't it, and how it was actually made. Because, you know, you see those pictures of um, the prospectors with those, you know, handmade bush wheelbarrows that just, you know, pushing their way through the through the earth. Um, uh, you know, people rode bicycles out there, didn't they? Um, you had the... Um, uh, the Afghan cameleers, you know, moving goods and services around. I mean, it, it, it's very, it's a very harsh environment is what I'm trying to get at, Vic. Well, see, the strong men carrying their food, their water and their, their mining equipment, their picks and shovels and things like that, they would walk in from Southern Cross at 200 k's in seven days and the, the lesser men would come in in, 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 in nine, ten days. Uh, and then to add a little bit to that was, you see, they, they had wells down around the big granite rocks and the Aboriginal people had, had learnt that trick long before we did. And, and, but there was two places along there where there were no wells. So there was two spots where you had to carry water for two days. And, of course, with the water holes, camels, horses, and that were all drinking from those. Mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, there was a lot of animal dung around them. And they weren't all that pleasant. There was a lot of, a lot of comments made in books and things of the time that you know, there was very little hygiene in that sense. And, and of course, that goes further. It brings you into Coolgardie. And um, the only people that are there are Aboriginal people, which had been there for many, many thousands of years as one particular uh, tribe of those people, and they had a good relationship with the white people. Yeah. But um, you see, over their time, over these many thousands of years, the the rock holes, we call them a namahole hole, that are, it's a, a rock hole, often like a small well. Some of them are quite deep, some are shallow. But when it rains, the water runs in there, but the animals drink there, and, you know, the lizards and the goannas and the... The, the kangaroos and emus are all drinking off, and they leave their dung around those rock holes, and when it rains, they're washed into there. Right. Well, see, the Aboriginal people had developed over thousands of years a resistance to that, but the, the white people didn't have it. And if you didn't boil that water before you drank it, it was pretty well a death sentence. Typhoid in particular was the main one. Yeah, I mean, they're very... I mean, the conditions are just quite um quite unbelievable, isn't it? it uh, especially for for us sitting in our air conditioned offices, um, working on our laptops, it it's just another world, isn't it, Vic? Well, it it, it was as Forrest described. I mean, these were the strong and hardy of the world. You know, those that that couldn't cope with those sort of conditions weren't there, mm -hmm. and. Um, and hence, you still get – you often hear people say, oh, well, your mining towns are pretty rough and ready. Well, largely, they're the, the, today's people are the descendants of those people who came there, and they were rough and ready. Yeah, yeah, it's in their genes. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, how did the um, the population explosion that occurred in Coolgardie, 
uh, you know, how did that affect the town? Well, you have to go back first to get, get to the people themselves. I mean, at the time, it's nothing like our living today. And, you know, people all around the world were generally living in poverty. And so if there was even a slimmer of a hope of making money and coming out of that poverty, people would take those chances. And that doesn't just apply to the Coolgardie gold rush. It's all gold rushes. But it, 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 it offers a dream. And, you know, people would pack up and travel halfway around the world to chase that dream. And uh, all on that chance that, you know, if I'm lucky, I can come back here and, you know, my family don't have to live uh, the way we've been living. Yeah, yeah. So how important was the – actually, I was going to ask how important was the access to the land, but let's go back a tick and paint a picture as to what the landscape of the alluvial gold that was available in Coolgardie. You know, what was it that that brought these literally hundreds of thousands of people swarming into – um, in, into Western Australia and 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 funneling them up into Coolgardie. What you know? What what did it look like? What were the sort of strikes that we're talking about, Vic? Well, first of all, I've got to clear up one little thing. It, it wasn't just alluvial gold. It was both. There was alluvial gold and what they called deep leads or deep load gold. Um, but there was a lot of it. Um, Arthur Bailey, it was found by Bailey and Ford, and Bailey being the younger man uh, in September uh, the 17th of 1902, they noticed other other horse prints around, so they knew there was other people starting to come around them. So he took a horse to ride and a pack horse to Southern Cross to register the claim. Mm -hmm. And um, on registering that claim, he took a leather, leather bag, Pack off one of the pack horses, and he tipped out over 400 ounces of gold onto the table at the registry office in Southern Cross. Wow. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and it was, I mean, it, the word went around Southern Cross, you know, almost instantaneous, and within days it was around Perth, and then with weeks it's around Australia, and, and of course in months it's around the world. Yeah. And um, But large amounts of gold, that's what differentiates Coolgardie from the previous gold rushes. So, Kulgadi, there was a lot of gold there. So how important was the access to that land then, Vic? How did you get there? No, no, as in, um, you know, for a miner to be able to uh, stake a claim, like a quality piece of dirt to be able to uh, prospect on, you know, how important was that? Well, he had to have a miner's right, and then he had to stake a claim where nobody else had staked a claim. Uh, the principle hasn't changed to this day. You would put four pegs in your four corners and you would have to have your papers on there stating your distance and uh, the date that you've pegged it. And, of course, another copy is held by the government department uh, and that would, would validate your, 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 your claim. So I'm hypothesizing here Vic that we're talking you know the 1890s um, that things weren't quite as accurate as maybe what they might be now that there would have been a fair bit of argy-bargy over who has the rights to which piece of dirt yeah look it's an interesting it's a very interesting um, point that you bring up because 
as I said, a, a large number, a very large number of the, of the pop, percentage of the population in Kulgadi <coughs> were coming off the American gold rush. And the American gold rush was no different to what you see on television today. It was virtue ruled by a gun. You're right. And yet the same people here on the Kulgadi rush we had no trouble with. And I attribute that to one factor, and that simply we had British law, which was a, a one law right across the land. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, that made the difference because same men, no violence. So there has to be a factor in there. <laughs> so you're basically saying there, Vic, that um, that the, the word of the... Um, uh, the, the the claims office was, you know, was ironclad, and that you know once you had pegged it, you had rights to it, and there was you know no claim jumping and the like. Well, there, there, just in mankind's nature, there was always those who would try and move the pegs, and 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 so uh, and, and and from here another very important figure on the Kulgadi rush comes into the scene. His name is Warden Michael John Finity. He's a great big Irishman, and the government appoint him to be the warden, in other words, in charge of the whole that gold rush at Southern Cross. And um, he comes to Coolgardie to verify that it is a genuine uh, claim. And then uh, on satisfying himself with that, the government moves him into Coolgardie, and and he he has total control of law. Uh, he he takes on many many. Portfolios, you know, he's involved with with building the town, health, law, all these things. And uh, I've picked up many books and read a lot on Michael John Finity, and never found anywhere where people have slammed him or condemned him. Right. And I, I think it's a marvelous attribution to him because, you know, he, he's taken on multi roles among some of the toughest people on the earth, and yet he abides and keeps control of everything. And he stood, and it was always spoken in good word. It's amazing, really, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, it is. It, you know, you it would have been a, you know, as you said, such a tough, hard environment, and um, you know that doesn't tend to bring out the um, the best in people. Although sometimes it can when you put with your backs against the wall, can't it? Um, that people will work together. Um, but you know, when you're trying to scratch out a living um, in very harsh conditions, you know, some people can get pretty desperate. Which um, I, I guess sort of brings me to the to the question of, um, you know, how many of these prospectors actually, you know, struck gold, actually made some sort of living, let alone a fortune? Well, yeah, I would say the percentage was very low, but the, the, the real gold for most of them was high wages. I mean, there was plenty of work here. Uh, you mentioned buildings and mine sites and underground mining and all these things were, were coming into shape. And so you may not have made your money um, prospecting for gold. You may have made your money working for some mining company. That's typically what happens, isn't it? The um, I mean, that classic saying that, you know, the people who make the money are the ones selling the picks and shovels, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just such an amazing, oh, I don't know, it's just such a, you know, gold fever, when we talk about gold, what, what, you know, what does that do to people, Vic, you know, when they catch gold fever? <laughs> well, it, 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 it's an unusual question or answer because um, it, it affects different people differently. 
you know, some people, and I've seen a lot of them, I'm a bit that way myself, it's a bit of, oh, yeah, that's nice, and some people go crazy. <laughs> yeah. So it's an individual thing. Uh, what about, you know, how were these gold strikes celebrated? Well, um, cool guardy, I mean, it, it takes a couple of years before you start to get uh, a, a large numbers and, and a, like a very big town formulating. And uh, once that's in place, there's plenty of hotels and uh, a large fine would normally come about, you know, shouting for the bar and that sort of thing at the hotels. Mm. Mm. It's... um. Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a would be amazing thing to uh, uh, to strike it rich, I guess. Um, for, as you said, for a lot of those miners that are working in such hostile hostile conditions, um, it's um, you brought up to about you know the the growth of Coolgardie. I mean, you know, hotels, um, you know, motels. Um, you know, there was a end up being a courthouse. There was breweries, newspapers, etc. I mean, how did that all come about? I mean, how did it's one thing to attract the workers, um, you know, to a site, but to to retain them, you know, not wanting to go off, um, you know, trying to find uh, their, their their stake of claim for gold. I mean, that would have been difficult to, to retain the workers, I would have thought. Well, I don't think it was necessarily to cater for. I think it was ra- rather um, you had to provide it. I mean, that's what they wanted. They wanted their hotels and their bars and breweries and, uh, and of course, numbers – bring in, you know, the business end of town. Uh, and there was, it was large, huge amount, numbers of money being made here. Mm. Um, and so you attract the investors and uh, the scouts that were working for my, or not, not necessarily mining, but large uh, uh, financial holdings in, in, in England and things like that. Um, it, it was just that the wealth was here. And so money was pouring in to try and get their share of it. How important were the banks and the stock exchanges then, Vic? Well, certainly the stock exchange and and the banks too. Um, but it, it it bankrolled Western Australia. You know, Western Australia never looked back from after the Coolgardie gold rush, and because Coolgardie leads to Kalgoorlie, and then many other gold, big gold finds across the whole gold fields, and. Um, it, it, as I said earlier, it changes the fate of, of Western Australia completely. The Western Australia never looks back. It has some hard times, but it never goes back. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, the, 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 those large fines and, and big where big deposits of gold and the large numbers of people are, are unknowingly, um, they are building Western Australia. Because I'm, am I correct in saying that there were a number of larger um, gold mining companies that uh, were actually funded and listed um, on the London Stock Exchange? Oh, my word. Oh, my word. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, you know, it was a place in the world where with a little bit of luck running your way, but you could invest and, and, and your returns were very, very handsome. Mm. Did that leave to, you know, a little bit of skullduggery, you know, um, prospectors salting mines and, and, and essay samples and, and the like? I, I've no doubt about that. Um, it, it, that's just human nature. But, um, you know, the, the, the police 
on the gold fields here in Coolgardie in those days were only really called out to like serious crime. And uh, out on not so much in Coolgardie, but once you got out into the bush where there were other claims being found, the old kangaroo court was was the big um, uh, thing that sort of controlled people. Uh, if, if someone had stolen off other people or done something really wrong, the kangaroo court would be called and uh, often those people would get a damn good hide and told not to come back. Uh, and that was ruled, and it was ruled very fairly. So it's a little bit of a different story to what we hear from um, the Victorian goldfields, isn't it? Um, that obviously erupted in the um, Eureka Stockade Rebellion. Um, that, that seems like it was much more, um, you know, much more law, full place, and um, you know, run with with somewhat more respect than than you know between the those policing as well as those actually trying to uh, mine and find uh, the gold. Yeah, and I think that's largely brought about the fact that it comes later. Mm. Uh, you know, in the time of Eureka and that, um, particularly New South and, and, and Victoria, they were living really under a Protestant rule. Um, I, I remember talking one time, this is a story you'd be interested in, um, the Christian brothers, which were Catholic teachers, and uh, they were around Australia and they were here in, they were in Kalgoorlie, Yep. And then they closed down, and I went along to their um, farewell dinner. And uh, after the dinner, I was talking to one of the brothers, and I said, why is it that you're leaving? And he said, we never came here um, to be teachers. He said, we came with the Catholic Church. But he said, if you went back into the 1860s and things like that along the East Coast, mm-hmm. if you were Catholic, it meant that you were Irish or possibly Italian, and, and there were very few of you, and you were being denied education. Mm-hmm. So he said, we became educators out of uh, necessity. But he said, we've reached a point today where no child is denied an education. So he said, basically, our job is done. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It is interesting, yeah, yeah. Which I guess brings the question too about, um, you know, how did families cope um, on the gold fields, you know, talking, you know, women and, and, and children here, because, um, you know, we're talking, a lot of them lived in essentially Hessian tents and the like, didn't they, Vic? They did, but see, you have to see the other side of understanding, and that is what they came from. You know, in, in most parts of the world at that time, unless you you were born into money, you were doing it pretty hard. Mm. And um, so people would take that chance. They would come here on that risk. And even those who didn't find the gold, um, there was better wages. And uh, so people came here even just for the wages. And uh, I might add also, like, in the deep mines, in in those, uh, well, even right up into the 1940s and 50s, you know, a lot of miners were dying with what they called the miners' plant, which is dust on the lungs. Yeah. Um, and yet they still came, and and that can only be said that they came to better themselves and their families, mm. and they would give their their lives for that. Were there many opportunities for women on the uh, on the goldfields? Probably more than than a lot of other places, because uh, one is necessity, not enough people, and secondly, uh, goldfields people they're, they're doing it hard, so they're very fair minded people. Mm. 
Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, when you when you start to boil it down to the the human side of it, and um, you know, obviously the allure of the of the yellow metal, but you know, there is very much a, a human side to this story, and 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 you know, certainly our five drivers, um, you know, are, are well and truly in place of you know technology, infrastructure, um, population, uh, government, and and of course credit, um, you know, that would have been extended from both the stock exchanges and the banks. Um, we'll see another side of that, which is, doesn't get um, published or talked about very much, but we talk about what the men did and how they lived and how they worked. Very few writers and that get down to how life was for the women. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that, and they would have lived hard because, um, well, they didn't live in the houses we have today and uh, they had to make do with what they had. So, um, and they did do it. They did do it. They, they got by, but it, life was pretty hard. And uh, 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 the role that the women played on the gold fields is, is just has been underestimated. Well, you can't have one without the other, can you, Vic? I mean, that's part no, of the way can't. society has to uh, has to function. But it does start to highlight a really interesting point that you know over the last couple of minutes that that you know we've touched around or, or, or danced around in that you know you've got one end of society which is very poor. Um, you know, in living in very harsh conditions. And you've got the other end of society where there was enormous fortunes and enormous money um, being splashed around that uh, there must have been, you know, a, a, a very big divide between the haves and the have-nots in the community. The only divide I've really found uh, across my life, like, and, and to this day, the Goldfields absolutely loves and worships working people. So men and women, it doesn't matter. But if you're prepared to get in and have a really good go uh, and give your heart and soul to it, my God, they will worship you. They'll pay you well, look after you, and do everything they can to keep you there. But if you turn up and, and you're on the lazy side of life and you just want your handouts without doing too much, you won't fit in. And I think that applies. We've inherited that through through time. Can you tell me, Vic, there was a pretty big event that occurred in 1899 in Coolgardie, the International Mining and Industrial Exhibition. And, you know, again, we're talking, my understanding is that there was over 60,000 people who were there for the opening, which, again, just seems a little bit mind-boggling for me that, you know, 600-odd k's away from... Um, uh, away from Fremantle and, and Perth, you'd have, you know, over 60,000 people in, you know, I guess what, what I was going to say is a small town, wasn't a small town there, but, you know, it shows the importance of it, doesn't it, that you've got this, um, you know, international mining and industrial exhibition on. It it, it, it certainly does, and but it, it all comes back to wealth. You know, the, the money was there and, and the investment roles were there, and it was where people wanted to travel to. They would take their families out into the gold fields. Um, yeah, I mean, we had um, the gold rush into Coolgardie has no parallels. You know, it it, it changed Western Australia forever. Um, yeah, and 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 it it's it duly earned its right. And 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 the people that came and invested and worked in that. Um, I mean, some of them walked away very wealthy for their experiences. 
and some of them walked away with very little, but they came. And made a huge impact, didn't they? Huge impact. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they changed Western Australia forever. It wasn't – I mean, there was a lot of stuff that went on too. I was quite surprised to read about this, that all the sporting, um, you know, adventures and and entertainment that was available to to the town folk. You know, we're talking, um, you know, not just, um, you know, cricket and football and, and of course, the pub, but, you know, there was horse racing – um, there was even, I was staggered to read this, that there was the, um, you know, it was the first place in West Australia to have baths, wasn't it? The, a swimming pool, was that correct? Yes, yeah, they did have that, yeah. Oh, that's, that is um, amazing. Yeah, and, 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 but see, it comes back to money. And a classic one I would point out to you was cycle racing. Um, we had an event here uh, that was um, was bringing world riders into into Coolgardie and simply because of the the money involved what you could win um there's one young fellow he's buried in the Coolgardie cemetery by the name of Beretta he's an Italian young rider and on the race uh, his front forks collapsed and uh, he went into the dirt and he was killed in the race and and Coolgardie people all put the hat around and um, and paid for a very nice monument for him at the cemetery. But, you know, it's hard to think today where people would travel from parts around the world to race a bike at Coolgardie. It, I don't mean to be disrespectful to Coolgardie as a town now, Vic, but, I, I, you know, it is, it is an amazing thought, isn't it, that, that once it was, you know, a... You know, as you said, a, a pinnacle for the um, uh, for the cycling tours. I mean, it's just it's just amazing, isn't it? Well, Coolgardie's big fault that has carried since those years is that it hasn't got up and told its story. Uh, I'm, I'm for the first time, I'm starting to see people around today that are looking at the, at, at preserving those stories and, and doing something about it. Uh, 25 years ago, I was on the council and uh, I advocated that we, we look at um, uh, publicising our history and pushing for tourism. And very few people were supportive of that. And strange enough, it was the older people who didn't want change. They said, oh, no, just leave it alone. It's OK. We've now got younger people coming into the town. And thankfully, and it is kind to see that we are starting to do something about our history Nowhere near enough, but we have started. It's a beautifully, from what I've seen, and I've not been to Coolgardie, but it's definitely um, definitely on my bucket list now. It is a beautifully preserved uh, mining town, isn't it? I mean, we're talking, um, you know, it's got the, the best of the best, the beautiful wide streets, you know, beautiful grand stone brick buildings. Um, you know, it just shows the wealth and the opulence that was once, um, you know, that, that, that once, you know, encompassed the town. Well, see, the sad note in there is that the town's own wealth became its own demise. When they, see, by 1900 in Kalgoorlie, or no old ones in Kalgoorlie, they're in Boulder, but um, the, they had three shafts down around 1,000 feet, and they were starting to really understand the wealth of the Golden Mile. And, of course, it went on to become the richest square mile on the whole face of the earth, and it duly uh, had every every right to its title. But it 
needed huge amounts of workers. And so the Coolgardies and the Aurobanders and Widgie Malthus, you name it, all these towns were emptying out because um, the, the mines in Calgary and Boulder were paying better wages. They had better shopping, hospitals, schools. And so that's largely what brings about the demise of, of Coolgardie. See, a lot of Coolgardie's buildings and that were pulled down um, because when they were built in Coolgardie, some of the finest tradesmen of the earth were, li- were working in, in Coolgardie. They were big money. And, um, you know, their, their, their masonry work, the quality of that was very good, their carpentry skills and that, engineering. And, and so when they're vacant and no one's in there, a lot of them are going to Kalgoorlie, but I found records of them going as far away as Albany on our southern coast. Right. And then um, what they called the miners' camps, they were timber-framed, corrugated iron, with the old Hessian and the whitewash Hessian inside. Yeah. But by 1920, you know, they were vacant. Hundreds of these things were just vacant. And so the government pulled them down carefully and they were loaded onto trains and they were sent down into the wheat belts of Western Australia, down to Meriden, Calabar and all that. And they became the farmers' first houses. Right. Um, yeah, and so it, in short, it's wealth becomes its own demise. Yeah. It's very interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, with that wealth too, um, you know, there must have been a lot of technological advancements that that um, that Kalgoorlie, uh, sorry, Coolgardie uh, witnessed. Uh, my understanding is that, you know, it had electric lights down the, uh, down the main street and um, even that idea of um, the Lord Patent uh, cradle dry blower. I mean, that's, you know, that's quite an invention and, and quite, um, you know, so appropriate for the, for the times, isn't it? It, it, it was. And, and once again, it's money. See, it's, it's, it's pure wealth that can pay for this knowledge or to engineer that knowledge. Um, one of the big ones on the mines up on the Golden Mile in Calgary Boulder, there was a lot of their gold there was what we call sulphide gold or telluride. And uh, when you first see that, that's as silver as your watch band. It's it's totally silver. Right. And it's only when it's burnt up to about a thousand degrees that you burn the sulfides out, and it ah. turns into yellow gold. Right. Well, there's stories around Calgary Boulder that a lot of the roads and footpaths paths were paved in gold. Well, weren't quite paved in gold, but they used the broken stone. Um, to build the formations of these roads and footpaths. And that had telluride in it because it wasn't until after the 1900s that they managed or worked out what to do with it. And so early pieces, there was gold-bearing stone used to form the roads and the footpaths. That's amazing. That's amazing. So when the council runs out of dosh, they'll just pull up the roads. (laughs) (laughs) And back to the glory days, Vic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the um uh you know the advent of the mechanical drills i mean that must have had a huge impact as well um on the mining efficiency um and obviously the the impact of Coolgardie itself yeah well hence the, you know the the technology and 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 and, and time brings new technology along all the time but you know they start off with hammer and taps uh, and that's a like a steel rod with a point or a sharpened end on it 
and hit with a hammer and just keep turning it. And then, of course, we get along to the um, the old widow makers, and uh, they were air-operated uh, drills, but they never had water. And so the old fellows were up at the face just swallowing dust all day long. Yeah. And then they would fire a cut, and, um, and then on the afternoon shift, the handboggers would come in, and they would have to handbog all that broken dirt, trolley it back to where it had to be uh, deposited, and um, all in dust. And so, you know, the early days of not just mining here, but mining all over the world, I would imagine, wouldn't have altered. The miners were working in dust, and, you know, many thousands of them died from the dust on the lungs. See, today we've evolved where we've now got water underground. The drill rods have got a, a hollow through it, so there's water being pumped through the drill rod up to the where it's actually cutting and grinding into the into the holes. Uh, and we've controlled dust, and and you know the silicosis is now very much a thing of the past. But it's the evolution that I'm sort of expression there. You know, we've we've yeah. come from the very primitive forms of of mining, and uh, taken us through today where you know they can mine high volumes of rock and uh, and control all the dust and and keep ventilation up to the men i want to touch on that problem i mean we're talking um you know 600 or so k's east inland from perth um to kulgadi and water is obviously a problem which is why i mentioned the the cradle dry blower because you know that was a solution that typically gold miners would use the power of water to help them search you know and, and for the metal but you know water was so scarce that you know they had to come up with a with a different solution hence the dry blower but water was a was a was a it was a commodity that in some ways was reasonably available but it wasn't drinking water was, um, you know, really quite scarce. So my understanding too, Vic, is that Kilgardie had a sailing club. Is that correct? Where they used to sail out on the salt pans? Yeah, yeah. And just only um, about 10 k's down on the Norseman Road, um, there was the biggest desalination plant in the world there. And uh, all that was basically meant that they would – and it took hundreds of thousands of tonnes of timber over time, but you would boil the water, convert it to steam, and then collect the steam, which would be reasonably free of the salt. Uh, and, and that supplied a lot of water. And those water condensers, I mean, we spoke before about, um, you know, those selling picks and shovels made the money. Um, again, those water condensers, you know, that was a hugely profitable business, wasn't it? Well, you had to pay for it. It had to be the top priority on your shopping list because you died without it. You also sit on one of the most uh, amazing engineering um, feats. In fact, in 2009, the American Society of Civil Engineers named the um, uh, your pipeline out there to, to Kilgardi um, an international historic civil engineering landmark. Um, do you want to talk us through how the government finally solved the water problem out uh, into the goldfields? Well, as I said, Forrest came to Coolgard in 1893 and he promised them he would bring the rail and the water. Um, and, and to do that, he, he then had to source, you know, the engineering skills from around the world. And I'm not sure how or who put him onto O'Connor, but 
they brought O'Connor in here from New Zealand. And um, th th there is no doubt it, it's just a, a, a huge piece of engineering. And, and of course, with anything that's new, you, you get your uh, doubters. Uh, one was a man who ran a newspaper by the name of Vosper, and he had a very big following, but he was one of them that said, you know, one of those doomsdays, it'll never work, they can't do it, they're spending all that money, we won't have any water. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the government had to put up with that. And the sad part in all of that, though, is that O'Connor is a very sensitive man. He's very, very intelligent, but he's, he's very sensitive also. And when we join Federation, our Premier, Forrest, becomes our first federal member in the federal parliament. And while Forrest was in, in Western Australia, he was the shield around O'Connor. He kept the barbs and the, the big mouths away from him. Ah. But with Forrest in Canberra and only coming home for a couple of months of the year, there was no one there to protect O'Connor. And so all the barbs got at him, and eventually they wore him down to the point where he committed suicide. It's a great tragedy, that one. I mean, he uh, he took his life before the um, the pipeline, or the, the, the final commissioning of the pipeline, wasn't it? That he never actually yeah, saw, yeah. you know, his huge, unbelievable engineering feat come to... Um, uh, in, in fact, it, it, it's the world's longest freshwater pipeline, isn't it? I don't know that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Certainly, um, I'm pretty sure when it was built, it was. I'm, I probably should have clarified that, that when it was built, it was the the, the longest freshwater pipeline in the world. I, I believe that to be correct. The one little smile that I always found that came into it, it, was, it is still, when you look it up, it's still called the Coolgardie Pipeline. And, of course, as I say, in time, Kalgoorlie takes over and it had to have the water to Kalgoorlie. And so it was immediately thought that they would have to build another pumping station to push the water from Coolgardie onto Kalgoorlie. But as it turned out when they surveyed it, Kalgoorlie, Coolgardie is actually 160 feet higher than Kalgoorlie. Ah. And so it would gravitate into Kalgoorlie. So they didn't have to build another pumping station. Fantastic. Fantastic. So it was a two and a half million pound venture, wasn't it? It was, uh, it was a lot of money back then. Oh yeah, and, and yeah, as, as, and 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 the men, the manpower, and that, that's needed to do it. You could understand those costs. Mm. I mean, they ran out of steel. They couldn't get steel in the southern hemisphere to finish it all in steel, and so the the last half of it coming up our way was a wooden pipeline. Oh really? Oh wow! The oh, same yeah. same dimension. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, put into – they had round uh, – gee, round pieces that were grooved in the, both sides of them so they could take the boards being pushed into them, mm -hmm. and, and they were two planks thick, and then they were bound very, very heavily in and, and a very heavy uh, wire and um, very, very heavy. And then tar – tar was over them. And they were still working right up until the 1960s. Uh, I think even in the 70s, there might have been some still left around. But um, as they were pulling them out, coming through the wheat belt, uh, a lot of the farmers, um, and they could get the, the timber boards for nothing, and they were building their, um, their floors for their shearing sheds and things like that.
Right. That's oh, amazing, isn't it? Amazing. I, I didn't know that about the the wooden pipeline. That's that makes it even more of a uh, monument, really, doesn't it? Well, even with the steel pipeline, um, they actually came in. The pipe came in two halves, and uh, uh, they made on 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 these pipes like a groove down each side of one of these halves, and the other half could actually be slid into it, right. and it was V-shaped. So once they put them in there, they were locked in. Right. And, and and that's still there's still those old pipes out there on the pipeline today. They're still there, and they they don't leak. Well done. That is. Yeah, uh... it was it was certainly. Uh, I mean, O'Connor. Um, yeah, I, I I would rate the man down as probably one of the finest engineers in the world of his at his time. Yeah, that is. I mean, it's an impressive feat when we're talking. Um, uh, when was it opened? Nineteen. 03, was it? Is that uh, 1903 was opened? I think so in Kell. Um, yeah. Yeah. Probably a little bit before in Coolgardie. Is that right? Um, yeah, it would have been a year, a year ahead of it in Coolgardie. So, Vic, tell me too, you know, the, the pipeline was such a, you know, huge engineering feat. But going back before that, I mean, the railway would have been in its day, I mean, it was, um, you know, a couple of decades earlier. In its day, it would have been as big a feat, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, um, but they did have a railway line as far as Southern Cross. And so the, the, the goldfields, as we know it, um, the rail had to be built from Southern Cross to Coolgardie and then on to Kalgoorlie. And uh, there was a couple of brothers, and also they came from New Zealand as well, called Wilkie Brothers. And they did a very clever thing. Um, the government called Pender to construct the line between Southern Cross and Coolgardie. And um, the main contenders all uh, tendered a set amount of money. What the Wilkie brothers did, they tendered uh, about half the price in money. Uh, I think they tendered just over £60,000. But they said, we'll only do that if we can have control and charge for the freight between Southern Cross and Coolgardie. So every 20 mile, they would build a railhead and they could take the freight off the train there and then it would be loaded onto the old Teamsters or the Camel Teams and taken on into Coolgardie. But all the way along the line, they were charging freight. Right. Clever. So it it was a very clever move. Yeah, very clever. And the role of the bicycle, I was amazed at the um, at the role that the bicycle played around uh, the mining um, towns as well. I think the bicycle is the under-mentioned um, statement of, of, of its time. You know, and right across Australia, not just the goldfields, it revolutionised things. You know, you're either, well, a horse you couldn't take it too far because it had to have water and feed. Yep. Um, camels was generally left to the Afghans. Yes. And, um, you know, we didn't have railway lines. And, and, and so the bikes, you either humped it or if you had a bike, it was heaven. It's, um, I mean, when I started to read about this, it, uh, it really struck me, you know, as to the role that, as you said, you know, you can, I can't remember what the figures were, but I, I think it was something in the order of um, you use 
um, a tenth of the amount of water riding a bike per kilometre than what you do walking because of obviously increased efficiency of the speed of which you can travel. Um, all of the postal and courier services around the mines, uh, the mining towns were, were, were done on bike, um, you know, up to two, 300K in loops. Um, you know, they, they were the way in which they, that they got, you know, those messages and, and, and postal service around. It, it, it's quite amazing, isn't it? That, um, and there's some fantastic pictures from, that I saw in, from the um, uh, Western Australian um, Western Australian Museum um, showing the old timers on their on their bikes and and pictures of the city or the township and and just how many bikes were apparent. Let alone, obviously, we spoke before about uh, you know Kulgadi holding um, an international um, bike race as well. Yeah, it is, um, and the, the 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 bike the the. Um uh, they had uh, a company in Coolgardie, and and but they didn't carry the general mail. They they only carried urgent mail. If if uh, say the manager of the mine at Coolgardie wanted to send a a letter to down to Southern Cross Mine manager, they would employ these people, and um, one of those fellows could could do that trip in in around eleven hours. And uh, one of the reasons they could do that was because the bikes loved the camel pads. The Afghans were here carting freight in, and the um, Afghans didn't have to uh, go from waterhole to waterhole because the camels could go a long way without water. So that was one. And, and the camels being soft padded, they left quite a smooth pad for the bikes to ride on. Right. right. So, yeah, they, they preferred to ride on these camel pads where they could. And they would deliver, um, you know, like we would say, a telegram today. Amazing, isn't it? It's amazing how you know how far technology has brought us. You know, back then, you know, it's important to understand the impact that a bicycle had on being able to deliver those messages. And yet now, you know, you and I are talking, you know, thousands of kilometres away, um, you know, over the phone. It's it, it's quite amazing, isn't it? How 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 we develop and and progress, Vic. Oh, look, a little story that'll emphasise the durability of these fellas. 1890s, Lord Mayor of Leonora, his name is Snell. Now, he has to, he, well, he, he gets married, he, to, he wants to get married, so he jumps on his bike and he rides from Leonora to Melbourne. And he gets married in Melbourne, and, and the, the book that I had this from said he was rather kind to his wife because he didn't make her ride back, but he put her on a ship right. and sent her... He he would meet her at Esperance, and uh, but on the way back he also bought quite a number of head of cattle and sheep, and he would drove them back to take to Leonora, um, meets his wife at Esperance and then takes her up to Leonora, and I've often thought how many blokes today would jump on a bike and ride from Leonora to Melbourne to get married. That is unbelievable. I'd love to know how many kilometres that is. Oh yeah, it's a long way. Yeah, <laughs> it's a long way. Absolutely. <laughs> That is unbelievable. That is unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, we just—it's yeah, yeah. hard to fathom those sort of, um, um, you know, adventures in in today's life, isn't it? We just would never think about doing something like that. Well, this is what I say when I said earlier, like with the people that came here in those early days, you were only bringing in, or the only people coming in, were the strong and hardy, the daredevils. Yeah. Yeah, and you needed to be, didn't you? I mean, it was a tough place. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Prior yeah. to the jail being built, 
they had what's called the jail tree, didn't they? Yeah, they had jail trees, but as I say, most most of if if, if something was pretty serious, and, and there's a lot of small mining operations all over the gold fields, and um, if, you, if someone lodged a plaint, they would call the kangaroo court, and they would deal out justice. Uh, you might cop a flogging, or you might be told to get the heck out of there, and um, so they ran it pretty tight, and 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 very seldom were the coppers actually called in unless it was really serious stuff. You um, mentioned before about – I love that idea of the kangaroo court, to be honest, the the, the classic Australian outback kangaroo court. Uh, that uh, You would love to have sat in on, on a few of them, wouldn't you, Vic? You'd, it would, uh, you'd hear some tales. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you would. And sadly, you know, the, not enough of the old tales have been, been recorded. Yeah, yeah, agree. I was just going to go back to the idea of, you know, it being a tough place and or maybe a dangerous place is probably a, a better word for it. Um, uh, you know, fire was something, you know, you had a, a, a great part of the city, you know, as we said, was constructed out of, um, you know, light timbers and hessian bags, etc. Um, you know, fire was um, always of concern for both both the miners as well as the township itself, wasn't it? Yeah, well, Coolgardie had two major fires. They went down the main street. Uh, but all of the places, even houses and that, would have had their fires. Mm, it, um, and I'm, I can imagine that once they started, it uh, would have been pretty hard to put out given the lack of, uh, of water and, you know, the close proximity with which people were living. Yeah, and you couldn't do without it. I mean, wood was the, the, the cooking material, the old, old uh, stove. Um, your hot water would have been boiled from wood, you, you know, and, and candles and kerosene lamps was your lighting. Well, I wanted to yeah, ask you about that, about the, the wood, because, I mean, you go a lot further than that too, don't you? I mean, those, um, uh, you know, those boilers, you know, boiling up the uh, the water, the desal or water condensers, I mean, they would have chewed through enormous um, amounts of wood. There's vast amounts of timbers that would have been required to um, support, you know, underground shafts, um, let alone to power the steam-driven winders and, and, and um uh, the batteries, etc., to to crush the the ore. I mean, timber would have been a very um, uh, prized commodity. And am I correct in saying that Coolgardie is on the edge of the Great Western Woodlands? Yeah, it is. Um, but it, you see, your timber was also graded. Um, we have a very common tree across the gold fields called a salmon gum, and another one a gimlet. And they were prized wood to go underground. You see, when you test timber for its strength, if it's building temperature, it's stressed laterally, how much pressure you can take off pushing it sideways. But if you want to stress timber for underground, you you stressed it from end to end. And because the the timber here grows slowly, it was the most perfect timber they could have to put down underground in the mines. And certainly in my time underground, now there's a super pit there and it's all been ripped out. But, um, you know, I, I saw old stopes and things that had been erected and uh, put there, you know, many, many years before my time, 50, 80 years and that before my time. And they were still as perfect when I saw them as the day they were put there. 
Amazing. Yeah, and, and of course, another credit in there goes to the Cornishmen who came out certainly into the New South and Victorian gold rushes and South Australia, and they came across here, but they were the, they were the men who had the skills for timbering underground. And uh, their skills were, were, were just about unbelievable. They, they would build um, freestanding timber and lock it all together, and it would carry thousands and thousands of tons in weight. And, and it, was, it, it never moved. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing that, you know, the technology that of the day and, and, and how that, um, you know, how they needed to use that to ensure that they could, um, uh, you know, build these shafts and, and, and mine tunnels. It's, uh, you know, to get to the mine, it's, it's, it's a, just a, I don't know, the, the ingenuity of man never ceases to amaze me. Plus, the hard working. See, those wood lines, um, the, the timber was great. And so the, the really high quality timber, the salmon gum and the gimlet, was earmarked for underground. And then there was um, uh, other trees here, and they were cut, and they were largely for boiler wood. Um, and and then, of course, your cutters. See, a lot of European people were on those wood lines, particularly the northern Italians and the Yugoslavs. And um, they would have to fell their trees, um, usually with axe or a cross-cut saw. They would bark them. And then they had to transport them into where the little railway lines were, and then they'd be loaded, and of course, eventually, then on the railway line carted into Kalgoorlie. But those teams up the front cutting that big wood, mm. they used to average per man eleven ton of wood a day per man. Wow! Yeah, that's that's, that's quite staggering. But in absolute ton. honesty, amongst those Italians and Yugoslavs. There were some very, very powerful men, very, very strong men. That's very interesting, isn't it? That's um, again, it just you know, it just highlights that whole that whole thing about you know the importance, the the, the natural locational advantage of um, uh, you know, of of a piece of land, you know, that the the the, the timber for them to be able to access. And obviously, use the timber to um, uh, to to build and construct within the town and and the mines themselves. I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, the whole story of what we've been talking about, um, Vic. You know, it's all underpinned by land, isn't it? And the desire of um, or the desirability of the land, the de- the desire of the men and the women to to and, and to the mine. necessity for it. Yes, yeah, because yeah. none of this happens, you know, without the land, e- even. You know the the, the beautiful um, you know uh, the, the beautiful brick and stone buildings uh, that uh, that don the main street there. Well, you see, up until the nineteen sixties, a little bit to the seventies, but certainly nineteen sixties, if if you had a look at the Kalgoorlie Boulder phone book, half of those names would have been European names, and and largely Italian and Yugoslav. That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is, and and uh, and I and I can personally say that, you know, I had the good fortune to work amongst some of those people. But um, God, there were some very strong men, yeah. very very strong men amongst some of them. Yeah. And the, the the lovely part today is you go through the bush, 
and 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 the the bushlands across the gold fields have regenerated. Right. Well, I was going to ask you about that actually, as to to how much damage was actually done, um, or was it done in a little bit, you know, more of a um, sensitive manner at the time? Look, uh, no, they they uh, took the, what they needed timber, and what they didn't need was too small, and they left behind. But I, I think the largest damage to um, to the timberlands was done with with um, uh, sheep. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the the fleece they uh, they certainly do some damage, don't they, sheep? Yeah, I, I had it uh, expressed to me one day, and I really I, it made me sit back and think. And he, he, the man was talking sense, but he said, like, if you look at the old forest you get a lot of single stem, one straight stem. Yes. And a lot of it today is multi-stemmed, and that's because the, the, the sheep in it eat the centre out of the tree when it's just a little tree yeah. coming out of the ground. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, well, they certainly can do a bit of damage. Um, tell me, Vic, as we're just starting to wrap this up, um, tell me about the Kalgoorlie uh, Super Pit. Tell me about... You know, can you give listeners some idea as to the size and um, you know, how long it's been going and, and, and what its prospects are, etc.? Well, it is, and it was adequately named, the Golden Mile, and, and it was. It was, a, it was the, the, the richest square mile on the whole face of the earth. Um, I, I, I never agreed with the super pit. I thought if they'd left it as a underground mining operation, men would have been employed there still in 100 years' time. But we live in a world today where everything has to be mined out overnight, and so we have super pits. And um, it is. It's a big hole. It's a big hole. Um, but it, it can't keep going down because your depth is controlled by your walls. And you must have a, an angle on your walls, otherwise they'll collapse. Mm. And so it, 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 at some point you must reach a, a point where it can't go any further. You, you haven't got any room on the floor. And um, so I, I firmly believe – see, when I was working there, the deepest um, anyone knew of the Golden Mile then was 4,300 feet. And then at the bottom of that, that was the old chaffer shaft, but um, – from there, the foreman came into where I was working one day and he said, we've just finished drilling another 500 feet. And that took their knowledge down to 4,800 feet. And um, he said, they haven't run out of gold. He said, the grade dropped back a little bit, but the oil bodies got wider. Um, <laughs> yeah, and look, staggering. I, don't, I, I don't think anyone knows the depth of the Golden Mile, but it won't be reached in an open pit. At some point, they will establish a floor, and then they will put in the, um, the 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 decline shafts. You can drive machinery down, and they will go down deep from there. And uh, technology is our, you know, the thing of the world, and it just keeps changing and letting us go about doing things that even 20 years ago we couldn't do. And uh, so down at the bottom, it's very hot, so there'll have to be changes, but. I've no doubt they'll get there. You know, the, the need to get there will, will will drive it. Oh, that's so true about any human endeavour, isn't it? When we um, when we want to achieve something, we can do amazing things to um, you know to overcome all sorts of 
obstacles, can't we? We, we, as I said before, we never underestimate the um, the the innovation and and um, um, uh, you know the the ability of man to solve problems. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, Vic, is there anything that um, that I've missed? Is what other questions should have I asked you? I, I don't know. We've covered a good, good, quite widespread there. But look, I, I, I certainly see a time that's it's only just coming on us who, who, to the West Australian people. But we are, for the first time, starting to look seriously at our history. And of course, my dream is that we we get up and tell our history properly. Uh, and it, it, I may not see all of that in my lifetime, but I'm certainly starting to see a point where we are taking a, a very strong interest, and I think it will happen. We will tell our history a bit better. Yeah, well, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, it's a uh, well. There's a lot of history to tell, isn't there? Um, and you, know, you you would hope that you know we really make an effort. And and I don't. I'm a big. I love history. I I think we can learn personally an enormous amount from history, um, because you know certainly history about man. You know, it, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, the timing. You know, people are people, and they still act like people. And um, and as you said before, that you know, the impact of of the bicycle. You know, no different to the telephone of today, but it's just different technology of the time. And um, uh, but the ingenuity of, um, as you said, those Yugoslavian and 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 Italians to be able to fell and um, uh, you know trees and 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 then create the the structures within. Within the mine shafts is, I mean, it's it's truly mind-boggling, really, isn't it? Um, you know, we might not do that today. We might do it in a different way because of innovation and, and and improved technology. But you know, it's still it's still a story about people and and people need land. We all need access to land. We can't live without land. I also think people like take a great comfort actually in looking back at where we've come from. Yeah, yeah. I love personally watching old movies for that very reason. I love looking at the the technology. I love looking at the way that people lived, um, the way we socialised. Um, I find those things really, really interesting. And and even the way to Vic, how like in this story today, you know, we spoke about the government um, and how they looked after the the law and order within the the gold fields and administered. Um, the leases and the like that those sort of things although it might have been done in a primitive way compared to how we would do it today but you've still got that overarching structure to ensure that you know certain behaviors don't occur and um, you know you've got protection of of rights and and the like it's I just think that it's just amazing stories and and as I said we can learn a lot and and you just see from my point of view you know, we just see those five drivers, you know, infrastructure, technology, population, government and, and credit. You know, they're, they're just constantly working, trying to, you know, drive innovation, productivity. Um, and, of course, that productivity will always come back into, um, uh, you know, people will use that productivity gains to, to bid up the, the value of, of real estate in the most desirable locations. And, and in this case, you know, we're not talking about waterfront properties or, or, or the like. We're talking about land that was blessed you know um naturally with with gold which you know in itself is just an amazing thought yeah one of the other big factors which a lot of people never take much notice of but i i always feel very privileged and um 
um, and I explain a lot to people, but see, my generation, I was born at the end of the, of, of the war, World War Two, but our parents had come home from a war. Our grandparents 20 years ago had come home from a war. And so this military um, was in our social in life everywhere we went. Like you did, you would never turn up late. The old blokes would be so cross with you. Yeah. Um, we lived with a lot more honesty. And um, it, it was all reflects back to military discipline. And, um, and of course, you know, well, many people today compare that with our young ones today. And um, it's okay to compare it, but if you look at it in all honesty, these young ones haven't had that, you know, whereas we had that everywhere we went. There would be someone you'd be working for, your boss was an ex-military man, and someone else was out of the military. And, you know, if you said something out of place, you were quickly pulled up and told to readdress yourself. Um, but that, that we owed that to two generations uh, that gave a huge amount, you know, to two world war, world wars. And uh, I, I see that in my generation and I see the difference mm. in the younger generation that's out there today. Well, you brought and up... I'm not advocating we all go back to war either, <laughs> but uh, yeah. it, it, it is part of, well, it's our history and that little part is there that's it. and it's quite well cemented. Into our psyche, isn't it? You, um, you brought yeah. up the war... Um, don't talk about the war. Um, you, you brought up the war, Vic, so it would be unfair of me not to use it as a segue into um, tell us the story, because this is a fantastic story, I think, about where your name came from. Oh, yeah, well, see, I was born the day that um, Germany signed peace. Um, that was on the 7th of May, and on the 8th of May it was enacted, and so the world was aware that the war had come to an end. And um, my father and, 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 of course, the whole of Australia and half the world was, you know, greatly celebrating this end of this war. And so I got called Victor for victory. And um, and then he came back the next day, still full of singing syrup, <laughs> and uh, I got Buddy Churchill thrown in behind <laughs> it. And <laughs> so, I, so I got Victor Churchill um because I yeah from the end of World War Two. Oh, I reckon that's a fantastic story. That is, an, <laughs> that is an absolute absolute ripper. And tell us, Vic, tell us, um, or tell listeners and myself about your writings and your poetry because it's something you're pretty passionate about, um, and certainly going to encourage people to go and have a look. But uh, give us a little bit of a rundown. Tell us what you're doing. Well, basically, we're doing what we've been talking about. Uh, I've always loved talking with people. And um, we've captured some of the stories, some of the personalities, some of the things that they've done, seen, who they are. Um, and I write with both sides. There's humour and there's sorrow there. But um, I, I would like to think that someone somewhere down in the future, they open up a page and go, oh, my God, that's how they lived. Mm. Um, so, we, you know, I think um, all writers do that very same thing. Uh, if we look at, we open up, we'll just say, for instance, Patterson or Lawson and, and start reading there, all of a sudden we're realising that that's how they lived. Yeah. You know, that was their life. And, and so it, it, it's, 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 a, it's more than a, it, it's a picture as well as words. 
Yeah. And so if I can leave that behind and um, and people pick up in the future and, and read it, well, it, it's it's no an era complete, but it does tell some of the stories and some of the ways we lived and how we lived and um, our characters and things like that. So in that sense, I, I, I take pride from that. I think that's lovely to be able to do that. So tell us. And what I thank the... my mother. Oh, it's a, that's a that's another great story, isn't it? It's how you actually got into it with um, your mum told you, didn't you? And you got to do what your mum says. It, that that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us uh, the names of a couple of the books and where can we get hold of them, Vic? Well, look, that's a bit of a problem. It's a it's a serious problem because the first book I put out, um, Tower, who then were an international um, book um, people, and um, They've now changed their name to Scribo. But anyway, they came along and got all excited, wanted this book, so I let them have it in large numbers. And um, But when the dust had settled, which was a few months, they were taking 67%. There was 40% going in, in retail and 27% in wholesale. Now, that left me one-third, and I couldn't make that pay. Mind you, you could if you were dealing in volumes of 100,000 or something like that, which I wasn't. And so I bought the books home and um, had to pay for that myself, bought them all home, and I thought, there's only one way out of this. You've got to go out and do it yourself. And so largely we travel out to shows and fates and around the state and locally, and uh, and we sell the books. And that's got an added advantage in the, in the fact that you meet the people and you get to talk with them. Yeah. Um, but my work has been well recognised. I've got a letter home from Buckingham Palace. Uh, I've got a, a letter there from um, um, uh, the, the Governor General of Australia. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it has. It's, we've, and I think because we're doing what we've been talking about, we're, we're, we're writing our story. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and you've got a website we can we can purchase the books from too, Vic. Yeah, if you go in on my webs on that um, Victor Churchill Dale, it will take you to a shopping trolley and, and PayPal, yeah. and um, and I sell off there. So I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes, and would encourage listeners to to uh, definitely uh, have a look and um, uh, you know have a read of of some of Vic's um, work because it is, as you said, it's it, it's it's great work, and I, I think that the historical side of it is is awesome. Which I guess brings me to sort of the last question, uh, Vic, and, and and that is, if people want to know a bit more about Kilgardie, then um, you know if they'd like to come and visit or they'd like to know a bit more, then how's the best way to go about it? Um, well, uh, probably the the easiest way to anyone would be to talk to um, the Kilgardie Tourist Centre. Um, uh, but um, I, I, they can always get hold of me if they need be. Um, You're available for, um, for personal tours, aren't you, Vic? I, I do it with school children. Um, have been doing that now for about 17 years or something like that. Um, yeah, because um, – well, one, because it's more – more planned than that, you have a set date and you know what time they'll be there and yeah. so you can work around that. Uh, and but the other one, I, I actually, I really like kids. I think kids are great. <laughs> They're sponges, yeah, aren't they? I do. They're sponges. Yeah, I, 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 I can hear a lot of people knocking kids, but gee whiz, there's a lot of good kids out there too. Yeah, no, it's got some great heritage and I'd encourage, as I said, you know, if you get the chance, um, 
you know, when the borders are opened up and, and, you know, we can travel around a bit better, then, you know, have a look. Um, Coolgardie, put it on your list of, uh, of places to go because it certainly, as I said, I haven't been there. It's on my bucket list now, but it certainly looks like an absolute, well, I'm not going to say a little gem, but maybe I should say a little, I don't know, a little gold, <laughs> a little nugget. Maybe that's the way, a little a little golden nugget to uh, to go and have a look at. It's um, It looks like a really, you know, it's an interesting place and it's got some fantastic history and, um, you know, I'm sure Vic will be there to uh, to help you around. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, we'd love to help you, of course, um, you know, on your own property journey. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, for us, it's such a rewarding asset class. We love doing these these podcasts uh, because, you know, it gives it gives us all a chance to, you know, have a look and a think and, and reflect on, you know, how land does actually touch our lives in, in just so many different ways. So if you do want to find out more, then please, you know, go to PAFO. So it's pafo.com.au. PAFO, of course, is the acronym for Property Australia's Favourite Obsession. And you can catch us on the socials under the handle PAFO Pod. So P-A-F-O-P-O-D or drop me an email at jeremy at pafo.com.au. To all our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I've certainly had a ball doing it, and it's been really interesting from a research point of view. And thanks, Vic, for joining me. Um, for our listeners, if you did enjoy it, then please make sure you give us a rating or a view because it does help us out. And make sure you tell your friends all about it because if you like listening to PAFO, then I'm sure they will too. So, Vic, thank you for joining me. Thanks for everyone else. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan, and you've been listening to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. And until next time, Vic... Let's keep thinking about gold and obsessing about property. <laughs> Good man, mate. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone, as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. While useful for identifying patterns, history and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Cowan & Flack has a commercial relationship with guests appearing on this production. 